Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of James Talks. Really great to have you all here. I've um, got another really special guest with me today, um, Mike McHarger, otherwise known McHarg, as yeah. McHarg, if I can say it properly, seeing I'm rubbish. Um, yes, but you may, know, you may know him as Science Mike from the Ask Science Mike podcast, which is um, a brilliant podcast about uh, science and spirituality and faith and things as well and yeah mike's got so much wisdom and knowledge about all these things and we're going to be talking to him today so welcome mike yeah it's great to be here thanks for having me great okay so yeah just tell us a bit of your story mike just uh kind of because you've got a very interesting journey of a kind of faith and coming losing it and coming back to it so just um unpack that for us sure um Let's see where to start. Uh, well, I grew up in the um, American conservative evangelical church, specifically in the Southern Baptist denomination. Mm. And for me, that was a really good experience. Um, I, um, I went a real popular kid, kind of a nerd in school. Mm-hmm. And I got a, a support system at church that was lacking in my other life. I got a sense of meaning and purpose from faith and um, was really a, a really devout Christian kid, <laughs> oddly <laughs> devout even. Yeah. And as I uh, grew, that worked really well for me. I was a, a deacon in my Southern Baptist church. I taught Sunday school, played in the worship band, all the kind of little American evangelical uh, brownie points. Yeah. I could check all the boxes on the card. Sure. And... It was fine. I liked it. Uh, you know, I had a couple of things that gave me pause. There was a pretty different picture of the origin of the cosmos and um, how the Bible and conservative evangelicalism says we came to be and how my beloved uh, science said we came to be. But I kind of wrote yeah. that off as, you know, a limitation of humanity's wisdom or humanity's ability to interpret the scriptures. Right. Um, sure. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of uh, friends who were gay. And so some of the church's teachings on um, mm. same sex marriage were troubling to me, but I ultimately just yeah. uh, leaned into the authority of the Bible and decided I was wrong. And, uh, you know, it was God's, God's um, right to say what was right and wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and that all worked really well. Uh, into adulthood, I got married, I had kids, everything, until yeah. my dad had an affair and left my mom. And my dad um, was a Southern Baptist music minister. So, yeah. okay. you know, I really looked at him for uh, how I approached Christianity, spirituality, uh, obedience to God. It threw me for a loop, you know, when he decided that he was going to get a divorce from my mom which is something I understood as being unbiblical. Like this is just because you fall in love with someone else, it's not grounds for a divorce. So um, I ended up telling dad that I didn't think he could get divorced. And I told him that that was because of the way the Bible talked about marriage. And I decided to do a little research to figure out um, how to tell dad, uh, right from wrong. You can probably hear my dogs in the background. My wife's not here. So they're, they're, <laughs> they're like trying to climb all over me, uh, which is funny because they're, they're Weimariners. So they're really huge dogs, but they try to say, oh, really? anyway, <laughs> uh, so I was you know, going to tell dad what the Bible has to say about marriage. Hmm. And, uh, I wanted to make sure I told him the best the Bible had to offer. I didn't want to give him my opinion. I didn't want to, um, you know, go yeah. off on him in some way that wasn't biblically founded. So I took on a research project of reading the whole Bible as quickly as possible. And I looked at an annual Bible reading plan. Right. And I realized that one 365th of the Bible is not very much text. It's a really easy read in chunks that size. So I decided to read four days every one day, which would let me finish the Bible in three months. Um, and I did yeah. that. I actually read the Bible four times in one year. Wow. Literally just trying to find out to make sure I could tell my dad the best the Bible had to offer on marriage, why marriage is important, what is right and wrong in marriage. And instead of finding that, I uh, just blew holes in my faith. 
the, the what I had historically viewed as minor differences between Genesis and cosmology turned out to be radical gaping uh, differences. Mm-hmm. Genesis, for example, says that uh, trees were made before stars. Yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, you know, and the more you read, the further you get from accepted science. Uh, yeah. And it also has a tendency to contradict itself. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 tell different stories of the creation account that have a contradictory order of events. Yeah. And that was like a really difficult thing for a young evangelical to deal with because I'd always been taught that the Bible was perfect and inerrant, that it was flawless, it was God's word and nothing, and it was uh disputable and not only that that it was completely free from contradiction so uh, a lot of people don't believe this especially in america especially in the south but it was actually reading the bible that started uh giving me so many doubts and i i gotta be honest Mm. i'd always been a person who read the bible a lot yeah but when i read the bible it was along with a bible study or a study guide kind of a guided tour yeah i'd never on my own uh gone through and looked at the whole book and then when I got to the parts uh, after the Exodus, when uh, the nation of Israel is moving into the promised land, and you have God telling the nation of Israel to not only wipe out these enemy soldiers who, if you think about it, are just home, the yeah. Israels are an invading force, yeah. but not only to wipe them out, but to kill every woman and child, in some cases, even the animals, um, that really struck me um, as nothing like the God I grew up believing in or worshiping. Like, mm. if, if God were to order, you know, I, I'm a pretty nice guy, but let's say I was I suppose I was a, a, not a nice guy. I was actually a, a pretty evil person. But yeah. if somebody would like, a God would order my daughter's kill because I'm a bad person, yeah. um, well, that's a war crime, right? We don't allow yeah. that in the world today. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah so certainly, yeah. I started Googling for answers because Google's where you go for answers to life questions. <laughs> yes, of course, yeah. <laughs> and what I found on Google was some writing from people called apologists. Those are people who make a rational defense of the Christian yeah, faith. Yeah. And I found most of those defenses to be pretty ridiculous. Right. And then I found the writings of skeptics. And when I would look at what skeptics and and atheists had to say about the contradictions in the Bible, uh, it was really straightforward. Yes, the Bible is contradictory. It was written by people. Yes, the Bible is out of step with modern science. It was written by desert people 3,500 years ago. And just one by, you know, it just made a lot more sense. Yep. Uh, And (laughs) and the other thing about uh, skeptics is they tend to have non-biblical evidence to back up their claims. Yep. And, uh... Biblical apologists tend to just cite the Bible as evidence for the Bible. That kind of circular reasoning really gave me pause. So as my faith sort of fell down bit by bit, theological tenet by theological tenet, I believed less and less about God uh, with every passing week until I finally was praying one day. I've always been a person who prayed every single day. Yeah. And I, I told God I didn't believe in him anymore. And... Uh, uh, it wrecked me. I had this kind of existential crisis where I felt the presence of God leave me. I'd always, this is weird, but um, growing up from a very young age and being evangelical, when you pray all the time to a God you believe is listening, you get this sense of God's presence. Uh, so I would feel like I could pray and God was there. And when I, I said I don't believe anymore, that, that feeling of presence just left me. Wow. And I also realized in very short order that a number of assumptions I'd made um, that I had really pinned my identity on weren't based in reality. For example, um, I always grieved the loss of a loved one as a temporary separation, but held firm to this belief that one day we'd be reunited in heaven. And I realized I'd never see uh, my lost loved ones again. And I realized more than that, once I died, I'd never see my kids again. And and it didn't really matter because the purpose I thought life came from to know and to serve God didn't exist. Life was a cosmic accident. Mm. Um, and there's no purpose to humanity. And no matter what we do, 
It's going to be wiped out when the sun swells into a red giant in 4 billion years, assuming we don't wipe ourselves out with nuclear war yeah. or climate change or something else before then. Sure. Um, and it took me to a really dark place because yeah. my morality and my meaning both came from belief in God. And I also realized I was trapped as a person because here I am, a Southern Baptist leader who doesn't believe in God. And if I show up in church and say, mm-hmm. guys, I don't think God is real anymore, or I tell my wife I don't believe in God anymore, I could lose my family, my friends, my entire social existence. Uh, I'd stand it to lose everything that mattered to me. So I resolved to pretend. Um, I decided I wouldn't tell anyone I didn't believe anymore. Wow. And I just pretend to be a Christian. And that's what I did for two years. I, I still went to church, uh, still led Sunday school. I led my oldest daughter to Christ as an atheist. But I had this <laughs> double life. When I would go online, I was an atheist and a humanist. And I argued against um, you know, the harmful aspects of religion. I tried to counsel people who were losing their own faith. And um, in general, tried to offer hope of a world where we find our meaning in humanism, meaning that humanity can help the human race and, yeah. and there is no external force to do so. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. That, that was good and it was bad. It was good because I found, one, I got a lot better at science without trying to force uh, my understanding of the world through this pre-existing set of uh, notions about God. Quantum physics made a lot more sense. Cosmology made a lot more sense. And even though I've, I've always loved science, I got really, really good at it all of a sudden. I even got better at some of the mathematics behind science. I got better at calculus. I got better um, at the mathematical underpinnings of the sciences um, because I wasn't trying to do these triple mental backflips to make everything fit inside of Genesis anymore. Yeah. So there was this kind of re- renaissance in my life and a new appreciation for astronomy. I, I loved uh, to look at the sky through a telescope and contemplate the massive scale of the cosmos because I no longer got any sense of wonder or transcendence in church. Uh, it was like, it was like, uh, going to the mall every Sunday to see Santa Claus year round. Um, it's a, it's a great tradition if you're a kid who believes in Santa Claus, but if you're an adult who tries to sit in Santa Claus lap, you feel really ridiculous. And that's how I felt every Sunday. Um, now, you know, I tried to be a good Sunday school teacher, um, at that time, I was teaching high school seniors, so I tried to look into the parts of Scripture that gave me hope as a humanist. For example, Christianity, for its time, was a very progressive faith in regards to mm. women's rights, in oh, regards yeah. to the treatment of the poor and uh, immigrants. And I tried to teach up those parts of Scripture while uh, ignoring or, or glazing over the parts of Scripture that are about the wickedness of humanity or, mm. um, you know, the teachings against same-sex marriage, all these sorts of issues that, that seem to be on weaker moral standing to me or weaker ethical standing. Yeah. I just kind of pulled out the stuff that I thought was good. And I actually became probably a more popular Sunday school teacher than I'd ever been as a believer. So I um, was getting tired of doing that, to be honest with you. It, it, yeah. When you wear a mask every day, it starts to chafe your face, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you start to die a little inside. Um, and I guess my wife could tell that fatigue was setting in because she asked me one night what was wrong. I told her nothing was wrong, but she knew there was something wrong, so she kind of yeah. continued to to ask me, even to kind of pick at me a little bit. And I finally told her, it's no big deal. I just I don't think God is real anymore. And she would have been less surprised if I slapped her across the face because we were this Southern Baptist evangelical couple and we don't, we don't believe that we don't stop believing in God. That's just not something we do. Mm. So, um, it led to a really uncomfortable couple of nights and she eventually told my mom who confronted me about my disbelief and both of them tried to win me back to the faith, which they were unable to do. I knew more about the Bible than they did from studying it so intensely. Yeah. I was familiar with any claim they could make about why faith was rational and already had a counterpoint or 12 to any idea they had to yeah. pose for me. 
Yeah. So my mom uh, prayed and said that she was going to ask God to perform a miracle that was so powerful I couldn't deny that it was God. And I just thought that was ridiculous. It was a sweet mm-hmm. notion. Uh, but, it, you know, it was like me asking Santa Claus for a pony. There is no Santa Claus to give me a pony. And there was no God to give mom her miracle. Mm. Um, wow. So uh, then I was invited out to um, NASA to talk about um, some developments in uh, a NASA base in California, wow. which I'm a nerd. And that's that's awesome. Every nerd wants to go to NASA. Yeah. The people that put robots on Mars and people on the moon. They're, yeah. they're the, they're the, you know, you think Google maps is cool. You think the iPhone is cool, but, uh, robots and people on other planets is just, that's like top tier nerddom, right? Yeah, like it just absolutely. doesn't get any bigger. Yeah. That's pretty, yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, so I, I told NASA, I'd love to come to NASA and see what they're up to. And then I got an email from a friend who invited me to a conference, very small conference with a guy named Rob Bell. Uh, the same week I was already going to be in California. I've heard that name before. <laughs> so, yeah, he's a, he's a, a well-known well, yeah. and somewhat controversial figure in the American church. He's been on my, uh, yeah, I've had him on my podcast. Yeah, he's awesome. All right, I love Rob. Uh, yeah. Super, super good friend of mine. So, uh, I go to NASA and I go to Rob's conference and we talk about creativity. And I was working in advertising at the time and I was always terrified i'd had my last idea and uh, where would the next one come from <laughs> yeah. a lot of sleepless nights the, the night before a client meeting trying to come up with a concept that would would get us the business or keep us the business and um and it was a good conference rob's a really creative guy yeah he had a lot of great things he actually has a book out right now called how to be here where he shares a lot of what he shared at that conference yeah and it's, it's amazing not like conventionally religious material. It's literally about how to create, which Rob, of course, uses a deeply spiritual act. But for me, it was a way to keep my job and feed my family. Uh, But in that conference, someone asked about atheism and they started talking Mm -hmm. about uh, philosophy and the enlightenment. And then they kind of started to throw little jabs towards atheism, which really surprised me because prior to that, this had been what seemed to me a very forward thinking group. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't just Rob, the whole, the whole room when the atheism came up, got kind of riled up, kind of rowdy. People would throw these little barbs out. Yeah. And, uh, it really offended me as an atheist, um, because, mm. As an atheist, it bothered me when atheists talked about Christians and demeaned them, you know, when they said they were ignorant or evil or foolish. Yeah. Because the Christians I know were thoughtful people. They were loving people. They were trying to make the world a better place. That's that's really their life's goal. Uh, And the, the opposite is also true. You know, hearing these Christians talk about an atheism I'd never experienced as an atheist. Most atheists I knew were good people trying to make the world a better place. Yeah. So I have I have very little patience for the the sniping uh, either direction, either direction. If we can't if we can't see our shared humanity, I think that is both unhumanist and unchristian. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's uh, true. I think a good humanist or a good Christian has the ability to see the inherent worth and motivations of most people. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I kind of stood up and said that and pushed back on a lot of the things the group had been saying. I finished my little speech by saying, so Rob, how can anyone who understands how the universe works believe in any God? Mm, good question. Um, which is a, I thought was a pretty good close. And I thought I'd get thrown out of their uh, little pastor's conference. <laughs> and I didn't, I actually was received very graciously by the whole room, most of all by Rob, who thanked me for sharing and being honest. And then he kind of pushed back on my pushback, uh, not by refuting any of the science, not by making apologetic claims about Christianity, but instead cutting to the heart of certainty. Yeah. And kind of called out that uh, obviously 
as a Christian, figured out a way of categorizing life, and then those categories broke apart. So I replaced Christianity with science. But either way, I tried to master reality by categorizing everything. Oh, that's good. So both, both, both went, yeah, Rob's. He's getting me. <laughs> he's that guy. Um, yeah, he just sees uh, things. So much of my life comes yeah. from his grace. So, that, you know, it, it drives me crazy when people, Christians especially, speak ill of Rob because I've literally never met a more loving human being or yeah. someone who cares more about people encountering the resurrection. I mean, the guy is just, he's a hundred times more orthodox than I am in his Christianity. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's a, that's a side note. So, uh, so he says, you know, what if you just took the things you don't know, the things you can't put in boxes and you put them in a box called God? What if you just admitted that there are things bigger than you? I'm not, I'm not talking about a guy, a, a sky god. I'm not talking about it. You know, no profession of faith here. I'm just saying, why don't you surrender that you can't be certain about everything? Mm-hmm. And uh, when he said that, I kind of had this little moment where I felt God's presence. It's very difficult to explain, mm-hmm. but it, it, it was it was like God was back for like two seconds, and then it, it blew away like a mist. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we just kept talking about creativity. It, we nothing was weird or religious or or anything for the rest of that conference. And a uh, credit to Rob and all the people there; they really were forward thinking people. Awesome. So, what happened after that then? Well, we went downstairs, and there was this little table and this little uh, loaf of bread and a glass of wine. And I realized we were doing the youth group summer camp thing. We were ending out our mountaintop experience with the Eucharist, with the Lord's Supper, with mm. the communion. What a different Christian traditions call it different things, but it's the same ritual. And I just thought it was a manipulative thing to do, and I, I didn't want any part of it. Um, and I was about to walk out, and then uh, Rob started to talk about quantum physics, which, as marketing campaigns go, you talk quantum physics, you've got me hook, line, and sinker. So I sat down, awesome. and I listened. And uh, as he kind of finished his talk, he mentioned that the last thing that um, Christ did in service to his followers before he was arrested was to wash their feet. Mm. And, uh, and then he said, if you don't know what to pray right now, just pray, how could I be broken and poured out for others as Christ was broken and poured out for me? Uh, which I thought sounded lovely. It sounded like humanism. So I decided I would do that. So I, I tried to remember how to pray. And I was like, okay, I think I bow my head. And what do I do? Am I praying now? Is thinking praying? Uh, maybe if I move my lips, it'll help. So I moved my lips and I said, how can I be broken and poured out for others? And I didn't add the Jesus stuff because I didn't think Jesus was a real historical figure. And even if it was, Jesus was an actual person, he was just a person who was executed for treason by the Roman government. He had no idea who I was. His body wasn't broken for me. Right. So I just kind of said the first part of the prayer. And then I just sat there, and people would walk up, and they would, Rob would hand them the bread, and they would dip it in the cup and um, just have this little moment. Uh, it just mm-hmm. seemed real weird to me. And I didn't really know what to do. I didn't want to come take that ritual and have people think that they saw an atheist get converted to Christianity because it was a bunch of pastors and that would be like 30 sermons the next week um, supporting a narrative I didn't think was helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I thought maybe I'll just kind of go up and shake Rob's hand because I don't want to be rude and just walk out. Yeah. Uh, So I started to walk towards Rob. And then he tears the piece of bread and he holds it out. And he says, Mike, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And, uh, ugh, weird feeling. Because yeah. um, now I have this, like, social pressure. There's a room full of people looking at me. And what do I do? Mm. And um, I decided I'd probably just turn around and leave. 
And when I did, I heard a voice say, I was there when you were eight, and I'm here now. Wow. Pretty, pretty freaky. And I was a nerdy kid, as I mentioned at the top of the interview. Yeah. And when recess came every day, uh, for 22 minutes, I had a choice. I could either go to the playground, get beat up, or I could go hide in the trees at the edge of the playground by myself. Wow. And I was an extroverted kid, so a lot of times I would want to play on the playground, but, man, I got really brutalized as a kid. I mean, I was, mm. I was terribly bullied. So I'd go out in the trees, and I was lonely. So the only thing I had to do was pray. So I would pray for 22 minutes every single day. And over, it didn't take long before literally my best friend was Jesus. My best friend was a rabbi who had been seen on earth in 2,000 years. And hearing that voice reminded me that this body that I didn't believe in was the reason Tallahassee, Florida wasn't a Columbine or a Sandy Hook. Um, you know, I, I was picked on so bad, I totally understand why school shooters do what they do because I many, many, many times thought about it. But it was that grace through prayer yeah. and belief that helped me overcome that and grow into a, basically a whole person. Wow. And so in honor of that memory, I took the bread and I dipped it into the cup and I took the Eucharist and I just, I went to pieces. Um, I ran out of the room, just, just crying. And um, that solved nothing about God for me. Absolutely mm. nothing. Uh, you know, a friend of mine is a friend now. I didn't know her then. She comes out and she tells me, welcome back. And I was welcome, welcome back to what? What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and a few hours later, I found myself standing on the shore of the Pacific Ocean. Our, this event was in Laguna Beach, California. It's the middle of the night, like 2.30 in the morning. It's a little bit of a fog. So, I mean, it's dark, dark, dark out there. And, uh, I decided, like, I knew the Pacific Ocean was there, and it's this powerful force, but I couldn't see it. And I thought, as a metaphor for God went and me right then, it's a pretty good one. I could do worse. Mm. So I started mm -hmm. to pray into the waves of the Pacific. And I said, God, I don't know who you are. Um, if you're real, <laughs> I don't know mm. what relationship you would have to the Bible. Um, I don't know if you can hear me. If you can hear me and if you can answer prayer, I, I'm really deeply concerned about your character because here my mom, a wealthy, affluent Westerner, prayed that I would experience a miracle. And you flew me across the country to meet with a famous pastor. And I know for sure some other deeply devout Christian mother in a uh, Middle Eastern or North African country torn apart by civil war right now is praying for her children's safety and that prayer won't be answered. Her, her child's going to die. So why would you answer my mom's prayer and not that mom's prayer when the other prayer seems a lot more pressing? It seems a lot more important. Mm -hmm. It seems a lot more urgent. If you would answer just my mom's prayer, that seems evil. I don't know what you expect me to do. I can't say I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments or the teachings of the Gospels. Those are It's a ridiculous, ancient, brutal book. Wow. I just know I've missed you. I know I've missed feeling your presence. I've missed talking to you. Uh, so I'll make you a deal. This is me making a deal with the Almighty. <laughs> said, uh, yeah. Yeah. I will pledge my life to being broken and poured out for the healing of others. If you and I can just keep talking, if I can never feel like we're apart again, because all I know is I've missed you. 
And I don't know what happened tonight, uh, but I know that somehow I met Jesus again. And when I said that, the waves of the Pacific kind of rushed up the beach. I was standing way up top. And it wasn't high tide or anything. And uh, the waves washed all the sand off of my feet. And I thought about Rob saying that the final act of Christ before his arrest and crucifixion was to wash the feet of his followers. And somehow in that water, I felt the hands of Christ. I felt like Jesus was marking me as one of his followers. And I looked up at the sky and I said, is this real? Is this happening? And when I said that, um, I'll have to use metaphors here because this, this is kind of hard to put into words, but yeah, it yeah, was yeah. like the, the air itself kind of stretched thin, kind of like a bed sheet. If you're, when you're a kid, if you ever pulled a sheet over your head and the, your bedroom lamp was still on, you could still see the lamp. And if your mom came in the room or your dad, you could kind of still see them as a shadow form. It's like the air did that. And the light on the other side is something I can only describe as the glory of God. Um, and it was, you know, time kind of stopped like someone hit pause on a, on a Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I felt connected to that light and I felt loved and accepted. And I felt through that connection to the light, that light's connection to all other life and the love and acceptance the light had for everyone else. And suffering started to make sense to me. And, mm. and then the world kind of fell away. <laughs> and I just was in that light. I lost all sense of time and space. I don't know if it was two seconds or 20 minutes that I stood there. Wow. And, um, and then I came back. Wow. I had no idea what happened. That's a phenomenal story. It was such a sense of peace and love and reverence. Now here's the thing. That light didn't say anything to me. It didn't answer any of my questions. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it's, uh, it's been studied. Those are called mystical experiences. Scientists are aware of them. Um, and they have a number of, of known characteristics. But okay. um, what I was left with was I understood why Paul would write about seeing a blinding light on the road to Damascus. Or why... Uh, you know, the authors of the Torah would speak of a bush that burned with fire but was not consumed because they had an experience that was beautiful and profound and life-changing that they could not possibly put into words. Yeah. And so if I talk about a sheet being stretched or the glory of God or a light, I'm using metaphors for a sensation, for an experience that I don't have language for. Yeah. And... That moment sent me on a search to understand God and what had happened. And I ended up looking into, you know, cosmology, astrophysics, quantum physics, neuroscience, ultimately to find a handle on God. I could, I could, I could get a hold of something that wouldn't be dissolved by my ever-present doubt and skepticism. And... Um, ultimately came back to some some form of Christian faith and practice, but far different than before. Yeah. Because my faith isn't based on certainty now. Yeah. I don't claim I don't claim to know anything about God. I, I just claim that I had an experience that I attribute to God and that when I lean into that experience with faith, my life is changed. That as my friend Richard Rohr would say, uh we can't um, have knowledge of God, but we can love God and through that love yeah. come to know God. And that's, that's where I am today. Uh, you know, I do the science mic thing 
And all my work is about helping people understand the science of these experiences, the science of faith and practice. Yeah. Help people come to peace with a different ways to read the Bible so they don't have to throw it out entirely. Yeah. But all of that is just a ramp. It's just a launch pad to get people to feel brave enough or bold enough or take the risk and be vulnerable enough yeah. to experience what it's like to know God. And in that experience, in that love, we find the knowing. That's awesome. That's a phenomenal story. Wow. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah, and what you do is amazing, really. Um, I've, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know about you. I, I've found that um, that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I lost a parent, and that, and I, I'd had a faith that had been filled up on certainty before that, and then it didn't. After that happened, it didn't make any sense to me anymore. And then, I, you know, I read Velvet Elvis, and that brought me back, kind of thing, and made me realize I wasn't alone. But then I saw everything is spiritual and a lot of Rob's stuff and your stuff, and it's kind of like, it's made God bigger. Like, the more I find out about science now, the bigger God gets to me. And yeah, is, is that uh, your experience too? Absolutely, because I've quit trying to treat science as a thing to take God apart with, and I've quit trying to treat God as the answer to unsolved scientific problems. Um, and instead... Use science to find out facts about reality that fuel the same wonder that I approach this numinous mystery we call God with. They're both ways to inform my delight and gratitude with an existence uh, I did nothing to attain. So, wow. So I've got, I've got, I've got a couple of sciencey, more sciencey questions. Um, I've, I've talked to, I've had a neuroscientist guest on my podcast before. Um, right, who was it? Um, Teresa Larson. Um, okay, don't know her, but that's cool. Um, and she said, she told me that, um, oh, no, not Teresa Larson, sorry, Kate, Kate Hendricks Thomas. I apologize. Um, okay. um, but she told me that there's been this research about prayer, that there's a part of your brain that only lights up when you pray. And I didn't know that before. Um, what do you know? What do you kind of know about that? I know uh, I've studied a lot of neuroscientists' work on prayer. Uh, my favorite uh, neuroscience researcher about religious experiences is a guy named Andrew Newberg. Mm. Um, there's there's countless interesting ones, but Newberg's body of work is both vast and accessible. Mm. Um, and so the one thing I know that's unique about prayer is during prayer – you can experience a lowering of activity in your parietal lobe. Your parietal lobe is responsible for your sense of physical space and proximity. Mm -hmm. That is unique to religious prayer and meditation. That doesn't seem to happen in secularized meditation. In yeah. terms of a part of the brain that only activates during prayer, I, I, that's new to me. I'd love, I'd love to hear more about that. I know that prayer causes characteristic increase in activity in both your prefrontal cortex and your anterior cingulate cortex. And over time, it can actually create richer, thicker, healthier uh, gray matter in those areas, which can help you improve focus and concentration. and also help you be more compassionate and empathetic, which is why I think there is such a good scientific case for prayer mm. and why I think anyone who says that prayer is a waste of time or prayer is uh, you know, um, bad for people they don't have any good science to support that. Yeah. Yeah, because I see I'm fascinated by how the way we were made, on a purely scientific level, kind of complements or speaks truth to stuff that we've read in Scripture about how we're meant to live, you know, about stuff that God talks about in Scripture. Um how do you what how how do you see kind of evidence of God's design in like the science of our, our brains, for example, and how how we operate as human beings? What does that? Well, do I completely see? accept naturalistic explanations for the cosmos and humanity. So I think that you know the universe emerged from a singularity about thirteen point seven seven billion years ago. 
It went through a period of rapid, rapid cosmic inflation. Over time, there was a cosmic evolution that created the first stars, then the first galaxies. A generation later, the first planets. Eventually, you got a planet here. Conditions were right. You had a process called abiogenesis, which is poorly understood in science. But, uh, for example, the scientist Jeremy England has a mathematical theorem that says, given the right conditions, uh, something like life is not only likely but inevitable. Uh, and then you had a process called evolution via natural selection that produced the immense complexity and diversity of life we see today, mm. including that most intricate of all matter, the human brain. Yeah. Um, so what I understand God as is not um, like an engineer who sat down and, and created all those things, but as a... Um, a theorician, if I could even use that word, that's too anthropomorphized, but, but the, what's behind those self-organizing principles, uh, what causes physics to so well, in, despite a, a tendency towards higher entropy to produce such localized organization that we call stars and planets and life. Hmm. Um, and that, um, I see God in that, in those things. Right. And, and in the mystery of those things, when we, you know, when physicists try to reconcile the, the best theories we have to describe reality, the standard model yeah. of physics and Einstein's theory of relativity, um, we get really, we get answers that don't work. When we contemplate a singularity, when we contemplate a black hole or the initial singularity the universe emerged from, we get answers that don't make any sense that are, truly mystical and I see God in that I see God in all of it I see God in the Higgs field that um, gives all mass mass that without which there would be nothing but sort of a numinous uh, <laughs> massless photonic like energy throughout the cosmos so um, I don't separate God necessarily from the universe it's a it's a very um yeah. Orthodox idea, the ground of being, the source of all. That's where I find God. Yeah. Well, that's. Yeah. I mean, I'm. Yeah. I'm totally with you there. Which, by the way, completely is undermined by my day to day experiences where I experience God as this personal being I interact with. So I just hold that tension. I understand that there's a logical, rhetorical elegance to the, yeah. the almost a pantheistic God. Um, but. Uh, yet I hear that whisper when I take the Eucharist. Yet I, I feel this guiding hand in my life. Yeah. Yet sometimes I feel God leading me to do specific things. Um, and I actually, that, that I wrote a series of axioms for that reason um, about the Christian faith that helped me explore and hold that tension between a God of physics and a God we know. I, I also have got a book coming out September 13th called Finding God in the Ways. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. On that. Yeah, what's that book about? Just tell us a bit about that book. The first half of the book is a is a deep dive into the story I just told you. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I basically am able to go into it with depth I've never been able to on a podcast or on a stage. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the second half of the book is how I explain how I use science to rebuild my faith. Literally, it's the whole, the whole second half of the book is, is just an examination of wow. where I find God in science. Awesome. Oh, yeah, I've got mine. I've got my pre-order already. It's, I'm looking forward oh, to thank you that. so much. I've been really surprised. Uh, it's really early in the process. The book still doesn't have a cover or a description on retailers, and yet it's already selling pretty well. So Yeah, <laughs> that's really awesome. weird. That's pretty awesome. Um just a couple more questions. Um, what's the biggest mistake that you think Christians in particular make when discussing science? I mean, even the most progressive, like, open-minded Christians, what, what's the kind of biggest mistake that that we as kind of followers of Jesus can make when we're talking about this stuff? Christians, even progressive Christians, have a tendency to force science through their lens of God. So whatever they understand about God, they will unconsciously twist scientific claims and facts 
to support their understanding of God. Now, in the most innocuous cases, that means they pick only the pieces of information that flatter their view while uh, not mentioning the ones that would undermine it. In the worst cases, they actually misstate scientific claims in a way that fits their understanding of God. Mm. Um, And I am absolutely and resolutely committed to speaking of science in ways that are very high fidelity and where a scientist trained in that field of science would say, yeah, what he said is scientifically accurate. Even if that means um, I might have to rework my theology. So I'll, I start with uh, empiricism. I start with the, the scientific ways of interpreting and understanding reality first and then move into theology. Um, and, and probably the most similar forms of theology we process theology are natural theology. But even those, in my opinion, don't go far enough in fully embracing uh, the power of science to describe reality. Wow. That's really fascinating. And I think you're right as well. It's really, it is really easy to take arguments and make them fit our own preconceived ideas, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah. I mean, we're all well, and I that. think the true gift of both science and good religious faith is the ability to blow apart our assumptions and show us the world in new light and help us grow as people, help us grow in our embrace of justice, help us, you know, right now, um, for example, let's look at uh, global climate change, right? So mm. science would talk about carbon. It would, it would lead to all these data points about our behaviors do that we may not be aware of. And our faith should also send us to this reverence for this gift of a planet we've been given. Yeah. And using the two in concert should enforce uh, a care for the planet, a care for life on it. Um, you know, the, the science behind systemic socioeconomic racism worldwide, you know, uh, tension between blacks and whites is kind of uniquely charged in America in some ways, but racial tension is common across the globe and science can help us illuminate the ways in which uh, power systems can disadvantage minority groups. But our faith should do the same. A a good read of the Old Testament, the prophets, for example, uh, also helps us see our behaviors in new light. So, um, I think these two ways of viewing the world are most powerful when they're they're kind of held in a complementary fashion. Yeah, that's that's true. And that actually brings me to my other question: How much of what we kind of deem as supernatural is simply a lack of understanding of like mechanisms which are kind of built into the way the universe works? And yeah. I don't really acknowledge any difference between supernatural and natural. Um, so <laughs> that's kind of a weird one for me to answer. No, uh, that's I mean, a really good answer. I mean, what, 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 you know, if, if something is supernatural and interacts with the natural world, we're going to be able to record, analyze, and catalog it, period. If there were scientists present uh, when, you know, Elijah called forth fire from the heavens onto that altar that had been soaked wet with water, we, not, we might not be able to, you know, identify the source of the flames, but we would be able to catalog their effects on that wood. We'd be able to see the temperature rise that led to combustion. Uh, there would be forensic evidence of the event. Um, at the same time, the natural world is far more weird and numinous and mysterious than our intuition leads us to believe. You and I are two strange, shifting sets of information, primarily composed of empty space, Every breath I take, I'm exhaling 16 sextillion atoms, which is more atoms than there are drops of water in the Atlantic Ocean. Every second, I am gaining and losing trillions and trillions of atoms. I have 37 trillion human cells and 370 trillion bacteria in a bag of water covered with skin and 5 million hair follicles that I call me. And all of this is a mysterious bit of matter that is getting matter from catching drag on an invisible Higgs ocean that fills all of reality. And this conversation is vibrations of compression waves in the atmosphere striking capsules that convert it to electrical energy, 
that then goes to a circuit that converts it to digital math that then transmits it using photons and electrons across the Atlantic Ocean, that Atlantic Ocean which has less drops of water than there are atoms in one of our breaths. If that's not mind-blowing and mystical, <laughs> yeah. nothing is. <laughs> I know, it just blows my mind. That kind of thing just... Oh, I was just going yeah, that's the kind of thing that gets that blows my mind more than often often more than when I go to church is that kind of thing. It's like, oh my word, that's incredible, you know. Um, you know, it just yeah, because you can't get your head around it. It's just yeah, and I and I know what you mean about I I get what you mean about um, yeah, not not believing in supernatural. I mean, I'm I'm very much a kind of you know, I love kind of Rob's everything is spiritual stuff, you know. But, I very much believe that, you know, that everything is kind of spiritual. Um, and, um, well, I distinguish spiritual from supernatural, but, um, yeah, but uh, that's a really interesting perspective. And that's just, yeah, mind-blowing. Um, so, um, just looking back, at, looking back at kind of your own story and all, all you've learned and all you've experienced... What's the kind of biggest lesson that you've learned that you want to pass on to other people? It's okay to not know. You, you don't have to know. You're never going to know everything. Just it, the happiest you can be is to just admit your ignorance to yourself and others. I don't know almost everything. And the greatest joy I have is figuring out when I'm wrong. I'm wrong about stuff all the time. And if I have my ego invested in being right, I don't get the gift of seeing the world more clearly. So few things thrill me as much as when someone shows me somewhere I was wrong and didn't know it. So we go through life trying to set up this carefully composed house of cards, this, this, this model of reality, and we get really upset when it gets knocked down. And instead of trying to build a house of cards that we jealously guard and protect from outsiders, that we try to keep the wind from blowing and knocking over, I've learned to simply hold out my hand with an open palm where ideas and insights and information rest like butterflies, just as gently and just as beautiful. I'm grateful for each one that is new. And when one dies or flies away, I'm grateful for where it brought me. I've stopped trying to master reality and instead accept it for what it is, a good gift. And the fact that I can be here, that I exist and did nothing to make that happen, propels me to a gratitude towards something that I call God. Wow. That's brilliant. This has been so great, Mike. It's been so good talking to you. Um... Really good talking to you as well. Thanks for thinking of me. No, no, I mean, yeah, you, you, I mean, yeah, you're just so, um, you know, I haven't listened to a lot of your stuff and, you know, you've seen your site and, you know, uh, just, uh, and just developing a real interest in science and learning more about it. Um, I'm reading um, Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs at the moment, which is blowing oh, my mind. Oh, that's a great one, yeah. Yeah, so uh, it's just it's just great to talk to somebody about that because it's it's helping me. I mean, it's helping me. I, I know I've got a lot of friends as well who are in the same position. People who are listening, probably, you know, who where this kind of thing is really helping them in their faith. And yeah, to be able to share that is really I'm really grateful. So uh, um, yeah, um, so maybe we'll have you back sometime as well. We'll talk about your book or something. But um, so thanks, Mike, for coming on and. Um, yeah, that's, that's all for this week, everybody, and we'll talk soon.